Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. That was a classic and traditional U.S. Open at the L.A. Country Club this weekend. Classic and traditional in the sense that it continued that classic and most important tradition involving the U.S. Open. Everybody complaining about everything and nobody being happy about anything. Seriously, would it really be the U.S. Open if everybody wasn't critiquing every square inch of the course and every single tournament decision? If you think about it that way, then this truly was the quintessential U.S. Open because it felt like everybody spent the entire weekend whining and crying and bitching and moaning and griping and moping and bellyaching and beefing about pretty much anything and everything. You know why it felt like that? Because that's the way it was. And if you think that I'm exaggerating or embellishing, why don't we go through a short list of the popular grievances? The course was too easy. There were too many players under par. There weren't enough fans there. The fans that were there weren't nearly rowdy enough. There were too many blind tee shots. The fairways were too big. The rough was too rough. It got too late. It got too dark. Planes kept flying overhead. The June gloom was too gloomy. The marine layer wouldn't go away. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure I'm missing a lot more. And I don't just mean lava spewers on Twitter with nothing better to do than reach for their phone and complain. There were some pretty high-profile players who got in on the action as well. Even the defending U.S. Open champ took a torch to the setup this year. Check out this quote on the atmosphere from Matt Fitzpatrick. Quote, very poor. It's disappointing on the USGA side. They want a great tournament. From what I've heard, a lot of members bought tickets, and that's why there's so many less people. Hopefully, it's not the same for other U.S. Opens going forward. End of quote. All right, so I'll give the guy this. He's got a point. The crowd was pretty weak, and I'll be the first to admit that. In fact, downright lame, right? Lame as hell. The U.S. Open looked like it was like some sort of sparsely attended John Deere classic. Or maybe the best way to describe it, you know what it looked like? It looked like a live golf event. Horrible, right? I mean, what could be worse than that? It was pretty embarrassing for a U.S. Open. But don't blame us. Don't blame L.A. Don't blame L.A. sports fan. Don't blame L.A. native. Well, I'm the only L.A. native. The rest of you just came here. I'm the only one in L.A., Well, I'm not proper L.A. anymore, but I'm the only one in and around L.A. from L.A. Look it up. I am the only native in Southern California. The rest of you came here. But that aside, do not blame L.A. or L.A. citizen or L.A. sports fan or L.A. 405, 101 interchange or the 110. For once, it had nothing to do with any of that. For once, it was an L.A. sports fan being fashionably late or L.A. having so many other entertainment options and having to choose those options. The thing about this tournament is L.A. fan did not show up, didn't even have the chance to show up fashionably late or buy a ticket or decide to do something else because apparently the USGA only made 
9,000 general admission tickets available to the public per day. 9,000. For a major in Los Angeles. And at least half those tickets apparently did go to LACC members. Or maybe even more than half. Which means the real problem wasn't that nobody showed up. It's that there weren't any tickets really available. They didn't sell tickets. It's just that there are around 4,000 general admission tickets available per day. And they weren't cheap either. So I get that it's a historic and proud and exclusive and stuffy-ass country club. I get it. But you got to let people into the U.S. Open, right? You got to let people in. You just can't have a bubble U.S. Open because you don't want the gross grimy, scummy non-members in your club stinking up the grounds. But the players and the fans watching at home weren't just critical of the crowds. They also hated the course setup too because, of course, they did. And that also includes the defending champ, Matt Fitzpatrick. He said this, quote, Yeah, I just think the golf course is interesting, to be polite, I think. There's just too many holes for me where you've got blind tee shots, and then you've got fairways that don't hold the ball. There's too much slope. Yeah, not my cup of tea. End of quote. Yeah, fair enough, my guy. I mean, you hated the place. You weren't the only one. But you can't go around dropping nukes like those and then jump back on Twitter and then try to casually yank them back. That's not how that works. Like, if you're going to say it, stand by it. He then went on to say, quote, On Twitter, to clarify, not criticizing USGA. Dude, to clarify, that's exactly what you were doing. Fine, but don't jump back on and try to unring that bell. Don't jump back on and try to put the toothpaste back into the container. You even called him out by name. You said, quote, it's disappointing on the USGA side, end of quote. Look, I'm not here to honk the USGA. I am here to honk standing by what you say. But it's fine. It's fine. You're not wrong. Everybody else was severely disappointed too. I mean, seriously, everybody. It felt like the only happy person at the LACC at the end of the day yesterday was Wyndham Clark. Well, and I I want to get to him too. What an awesome dude and what an awesome story. But he seemed like he was the only happy person there. Well, Wyndham Clark and Wyndham Clark's sister. Check out the reaction on the 18th green after he sealed the deal yesterday. So awesome. I mean, this guy has been through so much, so much. And her reaction, seemingly through tears, it's so much money. She's right. It is so much money. It is so much money. It's so much money for anybody, but especially for that guy. Wyndham Clark just pulled in a cool 3.6 mil. We're talking about a dude who had never finished better. Check this out. He had never finished better than 75th at a major before this weekend. Although he's played really well this year. He was ranked 293rd in the world a year ago. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think he started this year 112th. So 
yeah, he's having himself a year. Yes, that was a life-changing win for that dude. And that just makes his rock-steady Sunday all the more impressive. And yes, his sis is right. That's so much money. That's so much money. I love that. She's not wrong. He was rock-steady. The guy was a stud. The problem is, almost nobody wanted to see rock-steady Sunday from Wyndham Clark. Before this weekend, unless you were a hardcore golf fan, you didn't even know who that guy was. So what you didn't want, and I'm taking nothing away from the guy. I love the guy. I can't wait to meet the guy. I, I hope we can get him this week. But if you never heard of the guy, the last thing you wanted from this weekend was rock steady from somebody you never heard of, right? But he never blinked during that even par 70. And Rory McIlroy never made a move. He kept waiting on Roar. Kept waiting on Roars. He came out firing. He had that birdie on the first hole yesterday, but then never made another one. 16 pars were never going to get it done, and they didn't get it done. That definitely was not a Sunday collapse for Rory like we've seen in the past, but it definitely was another underwhelming major Sunday. Yes, he finished only a stroke back, but... He missed another major opportunity. We know how badly this guy wants another major. This is why he hasn't won one in nine years. You could say yesterday didn't exactly have a, quote, Hollywood ending, but that'd be very cheesy. The reality is, even if there was no drama, or actually if there was drama at the end, pretty much everybody still would have found something to complain about, right? Even if you got that Hollywood ending that you wanted so badly, you would have found something to gripe about or complain about because isn't that what the U.S. Open's all about anyway? Bitching and moaning and crying and complaining, especially if it's here in L.A. Discover credit cards do something pretty awesome. At the end of your first year, they automatically double all the cash back that you've earned. That's right. Everything you have earned doubled. All the cash back from eating at your favorite restaurant doubled. All the cash back from that trip where you sort of learned to snowboard also doubled. And the best part, you don't have to do anything ridiculous to get it. Discover does it automatically. Seriously, though, see terms and check it out for yourself at discover.com slash match. I could just hear you clones in my mentions. Hey, Rome, what a disgrace. Hey, Rome, the freaking holes didn't even work out right. Hey, Rome, did you see how badly... The low amateur got boned on 18. Yes, I did. Yes, I'm aware. Gordon Sargent had his gimme putt rejected like it was some cheap 18th hole gimmick at a mini golf course. Oh, my gosh. What just happened, Gordon Sargent? Still going to be low (laughs) am, though. Can't take that away. Gimmicky Gimmicky little miniature golf course, bitch. Yeah, no, you can't take that away. But he is the low amateur, and you can't take that away. Just like you can't take Wyndham Clark's first major or his 3.6 mil away either. No matter how much whining and complaining and bitching and moaning and griping about how horrible the weekend was. You can see now why the U.S. Open hasn't been to LACC in 75 years. I know you clones be like, yeah, it's going to be another 175, Rome. Can you get beyond all that? It's not like you were playing the course. Can you get beyond uh, beyond all that? Just whatever you do, don't say that Wyndham Clark 
wasn't incredible. This guy played brilliantly. His story's even better. And while it may have taken a minute for him to figure it out, and he did go through quite a bit, lost his mother when he was 19, had to figure out his game, tried to quit a number of times. While it did take a minute for him to figure it out, I'm going to say he's figured it out. And I understand that golf is witchcraft and that nothing is promised. Ask Rory. But I'm loading up on Clark's stock right now because I love what I saw from the guy mentally and physically. I think this guy absolutely is one of the ones to watch. I think the guy's an elite player. I think he is here to stay. And I could not have been more impressed with what I saw from him. Oh, and, and, it's so much money. That is such a priceless reaction. It was so great. And you can see that when he was coming off the track, how many people were so, so happy for him. So happy for him. U.S. Cellular has some great news, especially for you, person listening to this podcast. Right now, you can get one line with unlimited data for just $29.99. So, unlike other cell networks, you won't have to pay for lines you don't need just to get a good price. Get one line for $29.99 with unlimited data today. U.S. Cellular, built for us. Terms do apply. Visit uscellular.com for details. Alan Shipnook. Alan, good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Great to have you here. So another interesting weekend, especially at LACC. Let me get your thoughts on Wyndham Clark. He gets his first tour win last month at Quail Hollow in North Carolina. He'd only made the cut at two majors before the U.S. Open. So how was he able to overcome that lack of major championship experience and win? And then how unlikely a champ is he? Well, he's certainly an ascendant talent. I mean, I would say one of the three or four best swings in golf and people have been waiting for him to break through and it has happened quite rapidly here. Um, quite a package of of skill and grit. You know, he, he really won this open in the middle of the round when he was, he was struggling to control his golf ball, but he just had some of the grindiest, most quintessential US Open pars and even probably the bogey on the eighth hole when he more or less whiffed in the long grass. Um, you know, that looked like he was going to make a triple and blow himself out of the tournament, but he salvaged a bogey and just kept going as if nothing happened. So it was, uh, it's always a surprise when, when a major championship is a guy's second career victory, you know, you feel like you have to have to have a little bit of a longer resume and maybe pay your dues a little bit more, but uh, the, the talent is, is obvious. And the way he carried himself, just the, um, you know, the, the U.S. Open is designed to, to push players to the breaking point, you know, emotionally and, and spiritually. And you, you could feel the stress, you know, it came out in Rory's putting stroke. You could see Ricky Fowler retreated, but Clark was the one guy who looked like he was playing to win and he looked comfortable. He looked confident and sort of self-contained. And uh, it, it was just an incredibly impressive performance. So it's hard to imagine that this is going to be his peak. I mean, the guy has a lot of golf in front of him. It's going to be fun to see where he goes from here. I think that's well said. I agree with you. I think that he is an ascendant talent, as you point out. But this is not a guy catching lightning in a bottle, and then we never see or hear from him ever again. I think he's here to stay. I think he's going to get better. I loved it. I loved everything I saw from him. You mentioned Rory. So Rory ends up losing by a stroke. He's got the four majors, of course, but none since the 2014 PGA Championship. How much of a missed opportunity was that for Rory? 
Oh, I mean, massive. Right. Uh, the guy birdies the first hole and 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 could make another birdie the whole the whole day. I mean, obviously the course was was playing tough, but so many missed opportunities. He was striking the ball beautifully. I mean, hit 15 greens in regulation. It would, he from tee to green, he was fantastic. But it's not like Rory's a bad putter, but he doesn't make the putts when they matter, and that's the name of the game in golf. You know, it's. Uh, we, the, this was the exact same thing that happened at the old course at St. Andrews when everyone was playing offense and he was playing defense. And it's just, Rory is so good at golf. It's almost impossible that he hasn't won a major in a decade. And he's won, it's, it's not like he's been in a slump. He's won everything else, the FedEx cup, the race to Dubai, um, a million, you know, the, the players championship, a million regular everyday tournaments. He can execute, but not when it matters most. There's just there's a fragility there. It's completely metaphysical, and it's it's tough. You, you just feel like someone's going to hand him one of these. I mean, he, he shot an incredible four round score at a U.S. Open, and it wasn't enough. So on, on some level, that's unlucky. But uh, he was right there, neck and neck with with Wyndham Clark the whole day. And as discussed, Clark does not have the pedigree. He'd never been there in the crucible of a final round of a major. But he looked like the guy who was playing to win, and it felt like Rory was just kind of hanging on or just just trying to maybe get a putt to drop. But there was no conviction, and I don't know. I, it, he already has a, a sports psychologist. Uh, I think Rory needs an exorcism because it's just like he just can't get it done on Sunday at the major championships. And there's no explanation. I mean, sure, his his wedge game comes and goes, and compared to other bombers who are used to having wedges in every par four it's mediocre and that that cost him dearly you know on the 14th hole i mean there there are some things he could clean up in his game but um ultimately it, it transcends that and that's what's so vexing i mean after 10 years you, you at some point you have to accept like maybe rory just can't do it it seems impossible as good as he is but maybe he just can't get it done and uh, it, it's maddening and it's frustrating and everybody wants him to do it. He's, you know, he's the biggest star in the game right now, now that Tiger's essentially retired and he's been this incredible spokesman and advocate over this very turbulent last year. And there's, there's all these reasons. There's so much goodwill that, that follows Rory around. He's, he's classy and he can, you know, he conducts himself in, in, in such an admirable manner, but you got to win when it matters and he's just not doing it. So it's, it's, it's frustrating for everybody in golf and obviously for, for Rory as well. I think you're right, Alan. I think it applies to any sport playing not to lose is going to get you beat every single time. And I wonder, I mean, it's hard to imagine that he's gone 10 years without that fifth major, but it makes you wonder if he ever will. What about Ricky Fowler? How gut wrenching a weekend was that for him? He's still looking for his first major. He started the day tied for the lead. He shot that 62, a record-breaking 62, to start the tournament off, and then he finished five over yesterday and tied for fifth. How gut-wrenching a weekend was that for him? A little bit, but I think big picture for Ricky, this this was a major step forward. I mean, he's been in the wilderness for five years, and um, at least he contended. He put himself in the arena again, and he's he's been working on his swing very hard over the last six months. It seemed like a big ask for him to, for it to hold up Sunday at the U.S. Open when he really hasn't been there in so long. And I think you know for Rory, this is a body blow. I think for Ricky, this is actually a building block, and he knows that that he can do it. And he's just got to tighten some things up. And he had to taste it again. And you know, he hadn't been there in a major in ages, so. I think I think you know you'd give you'd give Ricky a, a B plus on the week. Like he, of course, he struggled a bit on Sunday, but that almost felt inevitable. And 
I, I think I think he can he can really take off from here. He, he's raced up to 34th in the world ranking now, and being in that top 50 is monumental as far as getting into all the major championships and and other important tournaments. So it, it was a career upgrade for sure, and it, it was hard to see him struggle. And you know, even that last hole, he made that soft bogey and. That knocked him out of the top four. If you finish top four, you get invited into the Masters next year. There's all these games within the game, and so that that that, that one hurt a little bit. But Ricky exudes so much class. I mean, I I was standing out there at the 18th green, and Wyndham Clark was was celebrating lustily as he should, and the hugs and the tears, and and Ricky just stood on the back of the green patiently, you know, hat in hand, just waiting to congratulate him and. You know, a lot of guys would have stomped off to the parking lot and it's just emblematic of who Ricky is. I mean, it's why people love him because he he's just a good dude and he, he always does the right thing. And and he showed a lot of a lot of grace and a lot of class on what was a tough day. So um, I don't I don't know if he's back back, but th- this was a big step in that direction. Yeah, I was going to say, not only did he wait patiently so Clark could have his moment, he they actually had a moment. And I thought that Ricky was very endearing. And I thought that he took the time. I don't know exactly what he told him, but very clearly they had a moment. So I think that really does speak to his class. And obviously, it's not a U.S. Open unless everybody's complaining about everything. You were there. You walked the course. Obviously, LACC is a little bit different. The galleries were not large. They were not loud. Was it you were on the grounds? Was it as bad as Twitter and everybody at home made it out to be? Well, nothing is as bad as golf Twitter makes it out to be. I mean, it's collectively the biggest group of grouches and grumps and uh, you've ever, you've ever, could ever imagine. So um, I mean, I thought, and I still think LACC is a really cool golf course. I mean, there was, it demanded so many different kinds of shots and it was fun to watch. I mean, the golf was fun. I'm not one of those guys who obsesses about par. I mean, the winning score is the winning score. The, Really, the USGA was much too timid in the setup on the first two days. And going to a venue for the first time, it's understandable. Um, It it wasn't that guys were shooting low scores. It was that there was no sense of danger in in the golf course. The greens were too soft. And so they could attack. And it's okay to make birdies when you hit a great shot at the US Open. But there needs to be a sense that there's something at there's risk, that there's something at stake. If you don't pull this shot off, you're going to get ejected. And there was no fire in the golf course. And so it definitely played a little too soft and a little too forgiving the first two rounds. It was perfect on the weekend. And if you look at, you know, Clark was only one under on the weekend. I think Rory was one under on the weekend. Like over the last two rounds, the course played perfect. And so that's not that's not the fault of the design. It's really the USGA just kind of made a decision. Like we're going to err on the side of caution and not lose the golf course. And that's defensible too, because they've had some screw ups in the past. And so... Um, you know, it's the fireworks on Thursday. If you were at any other golf tournament, people would celebrate. It was great golf and it was fun to watch. The US Open, there's all this angst because we want it to be this this grueling test. But um the vibe was definitely off. Uh there's no question. I mean, you're an LA guy, like everyone knows that that Los Angeles Country Club is no fun, right? Like no one wants to hang out there. It's <laughs> it's it's incredible facilities, but it's it's a weird place, it's super uptight very stuffy. They've got all these rules from the 1950s. And so uh, unfortunately that bled into the feeling on the grounds because the the club snapped up so many of the available tickets and there were whole grandstands that were just reserved for the LACC members. And so they would be like two thirds full and the grandstand right next to it for the general fans, there was a long line to get in. You know, that felt weird. This is, this is the United States open. Like this is supposed to be America meritocracy. This tournament is supposed to belong to the people. And 
that sort of elitism is better served at, at the masters than it is at, at, at the national championship. So I think it was a strategic mistake to give the club so many tickets. I think, again, because the parking was really challenging, I, I think the USGA erred on the side of caution once again. They should have sold more general admission tickets. They should have lowered the price. You would have gotten more average fans, and it would have been louder and more fun. So it was it was a learning experience. Again, they're, they're, they're slated to come back here in 2039. Hopefully, we're all still alive then. And... I would expect there to be some some structural know, changes dude. to if that's um, the way how it comes off the if, open. If so, that's the way, Alan, sorry to jump in. If that's the way it comes off, I don't want to be alive in 39. If that's the way it is, my man, you nailed it. You nailed it as always. Alan Shipnook, my guest. Alan, you're the absolute best, dude. Much respect. Thanks so much. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Don't make a shake or eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper instead. Old Trapper Beef Jerky is tasty and tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you are buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. And if you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? At WOGSPN. Tweeting. Breaking. The Washington Wizards are finalizing a trade to send all-star guard Bradley Beal to the Phoenix Suns. Sources tell ESPN, Beal's waiving his no trade to form a new big three with Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. Teams are still working through framework, but Beal is headed to Suns. about that? A new big three? Or a new alleged super team in Phoenix? Or should I say an alleged Super team in Phoenix. just want to hammer that point home. I would not necessarily say that this is a super team. Because did we not just do this whole song and dance like four months ago? It was only four months ago that Phoenix traded for KD and all of social media thought, well, the rest of the league is screwed. Why even bother with the postseason? There's the new super team. KD is in Phoenix. They're the ones to beat. In fact, cancel the rest of the season. Nobody is going to stop these guys now. Except the Nuggets obviously had other ideas. The Nuggets had a nice, fat LT hammer. That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. And then the Nugs curve stomp the Suns right the hell out the playoffs. Man, what is it with KD? How does this guy just keep getting super team after super team after super team? And it even works once in a while. Once in a while. So, of course, the only logical thing to do now is to forget any of it happened and start the cycle all over again. Forget remembering what just happened over the past four months. And let's just go ahead and get the Suns hype train rolling once again and say they're the ones to beat. I don't care that Denver won at all. Everybody's looking up at the Suns. There is a new super team, a new big three. Oh, and don't forget, they still have DeAndre Ayton. What a genius trade. They were able to get Bradley Beal without giving up their big. We have a new super team. Get the Larry O ready for the Suns. Yeah, go ahead and miss me with that. I like Bradley Beal. Have always liked Bradley Beal. Nice, nice player. And yes, the Suns just flat out stole him.
from the Wizards. I mean, did they negotiate with ski masks and clocks? That was a mug job. Just stole him. But it does not make them an unbeatable super team. I'm going to argue it doesn't even make them the favorites in the West. I mean, sure, it's an upgrade. Better Bradley Beal than an ancient Chris Paul. They're better. And, you know, I love what the deal represents. They've got an owner, a man, who is all bleeping in. Utterly fearless. I mean, we're looking at four max-out guys right now, which is going to inhibit what they can do around the four max-out guys. But let's be real about this, right? The Wizards love Bradley Beal as a guy, so they want to accommodate him to the best of their ability. But what choice did they have? He had the only no-trade clause in the NBA. Let me repeat that. He had the only no-trade clause in the NBA, and it may be a minute or two before we see another no-trade clause in the NBA. So what could the Wizards really do? There were other really good teams that were interested in Beal, but he wanted to go to the Suns. So what could they really do? This guy had the ultimate hammer. That no-trade clause forced the Wizards into a situation where they just had to send their franchise player and their three-time All-Star away, and all they got in return was an ancient Chris Paul, who I'm shocked is still even with that team. How have they not gotten rid of him yet? He'll probably never play for the Wizards. Landry Shamit, who I like, love him as a dude especially, and some second-round picks, and some swaps, and a bag of old deflated basketballs and some used sneakers. Phoenix got this dude for nothing. In fact, before yesterday, Phoenix had a Chris Paul problem because Phoenix had no interest in paying CP3 next season, and now they don't have to. And they have Bradley Beal. So I'm not sure that he's the player that he once was, but I know he's an upgrade. So that's a no-brainer. That's a win-win. That's a slam dunk of a trade. I'm not saying that it wasn't. But realize this. One year ago, Rudy Gobert was traded for Pat Bev, Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, Leandro Balmero, the draft rights to Walker Kessler, four first-round picks, and a first-round pick swap, all for Rudy Gobert, a three-time All-Star just like Bradley Beal. So when you compare those two deals, this move is an all-time heist for the Suns. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just saying it does not make them a super team, just as Katie's arrival in February did not make them the super team that everybody assumed. It doesn't make them a super team, and it does not make them the favorite over Denver. It makes them slightly more interesting It's an upgrade. But they're going to have the same exact depth problems that doom them against the Nuggets in the playoffs because that's a hell of a lot of money committed to four guys. Maybe they trade Aiton. Maybe not, though. So you better hope that the pieces fit. You better hope that they all share the ball because now you've got three scorers that need the ball. And you better hope that Aiton figures out whatever has been bothering him. You know, if you want to put that on Monty, they better hope that's what that was. And they better hope that it works with those four. Because what are they going to surround those four with? So I'm going to say I appreciate how aggressive it is. I appreciate what they got. 
and how little they had to give up in return to get it. But let's not crown their asses just yet. And let's not forget that everybody tried to crown their asses in February and the Nuggets treated them like JV scrubs. Let's not forget the Suns will only be better than the Nuggets when they actually prove it on the court. And let's not forget what the Nuggets just did to them and everybody else. All right, so last Friday was pretty much an awesome day in smack-off season, right? I mentioned this earlier. I will be the first to tell you clones, do your job. But me, I'm always about accountability, responsibility, and giving credit where credit's due. So let me also be the first to say you did your job really well on Friday. In fact, you made it better. So good on you. Congrats. The problem with that is, uh, okay, good on you. Congrats. You did your job. But the way I've always approached this job is back to zero every single day. Back to zero. What you did Friday does not matter today. Back to zero. Now, I will say Friday, we had Mark in Boston. We had James in Portland. We had an extremely violent and angry Matt in L.A., We had an even angrier John in Philly. My man Bo in Nashville showed up. And we also replayed this epic exchange from Payne and Pendergast, a.k.a. Shawnee the Cabinasian Pendergast, on Sports Radio 610 from Friday morning. You know, the one where Texans GM Nick Casario just casually interrupted Shawnee to bring up the smack off. Nick Casario, Texans GM, in studio with us. Okay, uh, one other thing. What position? I can talk about the smack off. What po- two weeks from today? Jeff and Richmond, uh, d- RSVP. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so you're keeping track. I mean, one of my favorite moments ever, honestly, on the program. And it wasn't even on our program. One of my favorite things ever. An active NFL general manager sensing that an interview where he's being interviewed in studio, presumably, is winding down, and the smack-off is not going to be brought up. So the active NFL GM brought it up himself and cut off the host to do it. Because a true clone, an OG clone like Nick Casario, is never going to sit down for a chat with a smack-off legend like Shawnee exactly two weeks before the main event without addressing the main event. Like, Nick was not going to let that fly. And I love that. So much so that I gave Nick a golden ticket for his efforts. Now, knowing Nick the way I know Nick, I don't think he's going to take me up on it. I think he'll accept it. He'll maybe frame it, put it in his office, behind all of his other great accomplishments, brag about it, and he'll always have it. But I don't think that he's ever going to use it. I hope he does. But I don't think so. But I think that Nick will understand what it represents. It also seems like a pretty good time to remind everybody of exactly why Shawnee has such legendary status in these parts. So today, the Cabinasian gets the profile treatment. And really, with Sean, you don't even need a profile treatment. All you have to do is put up his resume and say, look at it. I'll play you some of the smack because it's hilarious and amazing, but the resume alone would do because look at what this guy has accomplished. A five-time champ, five times, a two-time runner-up. 
He finished third. He's finished fourth twice. He's finished fifth. He's called the smack off 14 times and has 14 top tens. It's incredible. In fact, the dude has never finished worse than seventh. He was the first smack off dynasty in the jungle. And maybe the most impressive thing about Shawnee, other than the fact that since he started calling the show, he's launched his own really successful radio career. Aside from that, the most impressive thing about Shawnee is he took 12 years off and came back every bit as dangerous and as competitive and as relevant as he was when he left with a 12-year period where he was nowhere to be found, at least as it relates to the smack-off. So why don't we go back to the very beginning? Let me take you back to the Cablin Asians' first smack-off call. Way back, way back, smack-off number four. This is the Cablin Asian in 1998. Wait, this is a quarter of a century ago. 1998. 1998, fourth annual smack-off. Got to keep this thing moving along. Biggest day of the year in the jungle. Hope you're keeping score at home. Hope you took the day off. All right, let's go to it. We go to the Cablin Asian, Sean in Houston. Rome, it is a privilege to be included in the biggest radio extravaganza of the year. Now, you know, Rome, in my time as a jungle dweller, it's like going to school. I've learned a lot. I mean, just in the last year, I've learned things like all Utah callers have the personality of a dish rag. I've learned that there is a part of me that really does want to eat the other half of the sandwich. And I've learned that John Candy is alive and well and living in Youngstown under the alias J and Y Town. Now, here in H-Town, Jim, smack has basically become our third professional sport. And the only downside is a smack runner that I see to it. The paychecks aren't quite as nice as, say, baseball or basketball. I mean, I've called this show dozens of times in the last year, and I have yet to get a W-2 from Premier Radio, and I have yet to find a 1040 form that has a place for me to claim metrics, nutrition packs, and cartons of War Blast or DirecTV t-shirts as compensation. I mean, it's so amazing to hear 90s smack-off calls. Keep in mind, like, you could tell the guy was a star in the making, right? That was his first ever call, and you could just tell how smooth he was. But incredible that that dude was calling the smack off in 1998 and is still calling. And it's still a major factor and still a major favorite to, to this day. I also love the references to the sponsors back in the day. Metrex. <laughs> that was a big, big deal back in the day. You remember those bars? So Sean did not win in his debut with that call. However, he did win his first draft the following year when he hit us back when he made this call in 99. In this topsy-turvy world where the president can treat an intern like a blow-up doll while he's got Boris Yeltsin on speakerphone and still keep his job, where a team will guarantee Tony Martin a six-figure salary even if he goes to prison, there are two constants that I know, Jim. One, the only way that Shaq gets his name on both sides of the forum is with a can of spray paint and a ladder. And two, I know that from 11 to 3 Central Time every day, I'm going to be entertained. The influence of your show, frankly, Jim, has felt not only in your time slot, quite honestly, it's spilled over into the others. I mean, before your show came on down here, Jim, the typical call to the local afternoon show went something like, uh, yeah, Kenny, first-time caller. I was wondering if Mike Hampton is a lefty or a righty, and I'll hang up and listen. Now, Jim, thanks to the jungle, the typical call to the local afternoon show goes something like, uh, yeah, Kenny, first-time caller. I was wondering if Mike Hampton is a lefty or righty, and I'll hang up and listen. I'm out. Yeah, major improvement, Jim. The next really get it down here. The next really get it down here. So that made Sean the king of smack for the first time. However, the dynasty did not fully take hold until the mid-2000s, when he ran off four more wins in five years, including the first-ever jungle three-peat. Then he walked it off, stayed away for more than a decade, 
and he would have stayed an icon and a goat forever, even if he never came back. But he did come back, and he came back to a totally different field of callers than the one he left before. And it didn't even matter because he showed up like this. Hey, uh, props to Jeff in Southfield for being the first caller to make it through his entire call while undergoing electroshock therapy. Dude, why do you talk like that? When you get friends someday, that's going to be a big problem for them. Dodger Vigilante Twitter is bad, Jim, but not nearly as bad as Smack Off Ramp Up Twitter. Opening Twitter the last two weeks has been like when I had to go to the mailbox while I was getting divorced. There's nothing good in there. It's like lawyer bill, lawyer bill, debt collector. Tweet from Matt in L.A. Oh, my God. This Matt guy, this rambling moron who's addicted to hashtags and allergic to punctuation. Dude, you're the worst. I wish there was a feature on Twitter where I could just give you 50 cents to go away like a homeless person. I'll give Brad and Corona credit. You wake up, you call in, and you be the biggest tool you can possibly be. Pfizer, cigar, shades, shirtless avatar, checks all the boxes on the douche list. I'm guessing Brad and Corona's favorite category on Pornhub is Brad and Corona. Incredible. <laughs> this dude. So, Shawnee's best work since he returned to the Smack Off, though, came at Smack Off 27 when he hit the podium once again for the first time in 14 years by turning the Smack back on himself. As for the rest of you, there's really nothing you can say about me that's going to bother me. He's bald. He's fat. He's on his second marriage. He's got the testosterone level of a teenage girl. I'm reminded of all of those things every day that I'm on the radio because I've done what every middle-aged morning drive host in a capitalist society should do. I have turned all my flaws into endorsement money. My fatness, my baldness, my earth-shaking snoring, my microscopic testosterone level, I have turned them all into sponsors and a bunch of money bag emojis. You asshats. My flaws are putting my kids through college. I win. And my hope is that this inspires all of you to do the same. I mean, you can't teach that. This dude is so good. He is so good at this. He's literally a professional at this. He's one of, if not the single best to ever do this. He can absolutely win any smack off that he calls into. And now we know for sure that he will be calling in to Smack Off 29 because he RSVP'd via text right after the program on Friday. So the rest of you can plan on hearing more straight fire like this come the 30th. Happy day after dong day, Jim. 1998 was the first time I was invited to the Smack Off. And here I am, three kids, two marriages, and five titles later in this never ever gets old. Bobby in Brooklyn. Where I come from, Bobo, we have a word for someone in New York City who speaks good English, okay? A visitor. Who's the best-looking Van Gundy brother? And by the way, if your brother looks like Ron Jeremy and you're considered the ugly one, maybe time to get that face transplant, Jeff. Otis, my man, you're a pretty good caller already, but I gotta tell you, when you finally learn to speak English, dude, you're gonna be unstoppable. I took a torch that was passed by my predecessors, names like Ditola and Iafrady and Ditola and I afraid he's LU Station gonna be able to teach NBA players, right? All he did was get drunk and lick a few co eds. The average NBA player was doing that at like age three. If Chris Dapps Porzingis and a sewer rat had a baby, you'd have Vic in no cow. If Chris Dapps Porzingis and Halitosis had a baby, you'd have Leff in Laguna. If Chris Dapps Porzingis and Amber Heard's bad sheets had a baby, you'd have Brad and Corona. The champ is here. I win more than anybody because I am the best at this. Always have been, always will be. The legend, Shawnee the Cabinet Asian, the first Smack Off dynasty, the five-time champ, 
one of the best to ever do it, and one of the single biggest threats to rip his sixth strap and tie the PIC for the most ever. As always, cannot wait for your call on the 30th, Sean. Is he going to run down the BIC? Is the BIC going to get number seven? What will Left have to say about it? What about Rick? What about Vic? What about VD and the fee? Hey, what about Amber? Got some female representation. Yeah, I know. I know, clones. What about whose turn did you decide it was for them to win, Rome? Let's go to John in New York. John, brother, what's going on? Hey, Jim, how you doing? I heard this player profile with the Cabination, and then I heard the Nick Casario's uh, smack-off promotion on his show, in which Shawnee did absolutely nothing to further promote the smack-off. Give him guts, Jim. What a hack he was. Nick Casario's was sick and tired of whatever he was asking him. He wanted to talk to smack-off, and Shawnee wanted to go into his lazy bum questioning or whatever he was doing with Nick, and it was clear as day. Nick wanted to know about the smack-off. And like an elephant caught in the headlights, Shawnee choked. He didn't promote the smack-off. He didn't do anything to further for the show, for, for, the, for the guy that brought him in, for the guy who got him in the position that he's in. Made me sick to hear that. And it even made me sicker to hear him getting a, a player profile today, Jim. Um, I'll see him on the 30th. I got more things about Shawnee on the 30th. And I'll talk to you about it then, Jim. Thank you. Mike in the Bay. Dude, I appreciate you being so patient. What's going on, Mike? How are you? Pimp, what's up? What's, what's up, up, Mike? First of all, Jimmy, if we're going to talk to the Tolas, it's only right that you also reset Brad's epic nerds take on those bags from the 2009 Smack Off. Jimmy, when I heard the show open today and you talking about L.A., you know, two hours ago, thanks for nothing, Savage, I thought for sure you were leaving with a take on the arsonist currently residing over at the ravine. Holy moly, did you catch any of that weekend series? The Giants rolling through town for a nice, swift-ass brooming? Yikes. Instead of walk-up music for each batter, the Dodgers PA guy should just queue up Prodigy's Firestarter every time Doc has to go to the bullpen these days. But Jim, I had to take some umbrage with you claiming you're the only L.A. native. I am also an L.A. native, Jimmy. Westside born and raised. But if that makes us the only two people from L.A., Jim, does that make me the goose to your math? And if that makes me your wingman, can we organize a day on the town together? Jim, here's some ideas. Wake up in the morning, Rome, you hand-deliver me a coffee and a vegan scone from Earth Cafe. Then we head out to Santa Monica for a tandem bike ride, or maybe a dual blade if we have the time. Then, Jimmy, we can pop over to Patrick's Roadhouse for lunch and say hi to Arnie followed by a lovely hike in Malibu. We can go visit Kobe's grave, Jim. Albie, don't run me yet. I'm about to compliment you. Then, Jimmy, you, DJ, and I can take in a Dodgers game at the end of the day, order a couple of pops from that usher, Mark in Hollywood, and then spew all over the upper deck at the absolute disaster the boys in blue are this year. War of the Clones getting the legend Albie into the Radio Hall of Fame next. There is no jungle without Albie. War, R.I.B. getting over the line. War, Mike and Indy finishing and runner-up spot again. Out. So I agree with maybe 85% of that. 85% of that call was fair. Maybe. 
the Kobe grave blast was totally unnecessary. And Alvin, you should have run him for that. Extremely distasteful. Good night now!